Alrighty then. So apparently there's a picture up there, yeah? And what is it? Was that got some farmer in it? Okay, just checking. Yes, that's, uh, what's the next picture? It's a sheaf of wheat. You guys wouldn't know that, of course, because we haven't had to do that in this country for 150 years. We have machines that do that now. But in the old days, that's how you did it. So you read the sheaf of wheat or you sing that song or, you know, whatever. And that's the deal. You used to have to go through, and I'm not clear on the order in which this occurred, but you would take your sickle and you would cut the sheaves down, cut the wheat down, and then you'd bundle it up into a nice, uh, into a sheaf like that. So um, we're going to talk about that tonight because we are in the sixth day of counting the Omer. And we as 21st century American Christians, that's one of the many things we don't get to keep, but we should. So I'm going to make you guys do it every day. Um, okay, so is there a homework page? Okay, write this down because that's your homework. Hopefully you're still reading Enoch and Jasher or, you know, something. But I'd like you to read Matt Nyahu chapter 13 maybe a couple of times. And of course, it's always good for you to be reading the book of the Revelation of the Apocalypse, you know, now, because I think we're living through it and about to be living through it. So you remember in the Revelation, when you open the seals, we've got the white horse who's the conquering guy. And that may have happened because every country in the world has been taken over. So that could happen. And you get down to the sixth seal, and, and that's the seal where a quarter of the population dies. So that would be unmistakable. We can, you know, you can make a case for, you know, we've been conquered. We haven't been conquered. Everything's good. You can make a case for the pestilence and the, you know, and all that stuff. When you get down to a quarter of the population of the earth is, is gone, then you will know officially we are in the book of Revelation and the seals have been broken and we've now, we're, we're on about the last seal. So then we're going to go into the bowls and the trumpets. So just, just so you know. Um, so there's a little bit of news I want to cover before we get, I even hate wasting my time on this, but you've, I've mentioned it before and you've no doubt heard it gain of function you guys are familiar with that term or not okay gain of function that let me just read the definition gain of function is the euphemism for the biological research aimed at increasing the virulence of le and, and lethality of pathogens and viruses Gain-of-function research is government-funded. It's focused on enhancing pathogens' ability to infect different species and to increase their deadly impact as airborne pathogens and viruses. Ostensibly, gain-of-function research is conducted for biodefense purposes. These experiments, however, are extremely dangerous. Those deadly science-enhanced pathogens can and do escape into the community where they infect and kill people. What's more... This line of research can be used only for biological warfare. There's no useful reason to be engaged in what they call gain of function science. It's not like you're, you know, you're, it's not like a transformers. You're taking a, you know, a Camaro and turning it into an airplane, something useful. This is designed for one purpose to kill people. And that's what Anthony Fauci and his whole deal has been doing since 1974. And if you recall in 2015, it was getting so hot, Obama had to offshore it to China, to Wuhan. So Fauci kept, well, through the government, through Fauci, kept funding the research to the tune of $3.8 million a year in Wuhan. So this is what he does. This is what the government does. And... Presumably, that's what this is or is about to be. Um, 
I'm going to have t-shirts made up for all of you that says, I am a transvaxite because uh, I identify as someone who's had the vaccine and is completely cured of COVID and can't get it. And according... Okay, yeah, I got it. I'd make it real big on the t-shirts. And according to the new bill, HR5, uh, you can't question me on it. I can identify as anybody I want to be. I'm choosing to identify as somebody who's been vaccinated and can no longer get COVID. Um, the mRNA, we've talked about this before. We talked about this a year ago in March, the mRNA vaccine and all the things are in it. And I mentioned the luciferase and the luciferin, you know, the which is the light thing. Um, what I didn't know, and somebody pointed out to me in the patent, they actually sent me the patent, um, that the luciferase is dissolved in 66.6 milliliters of distilled phosphate buffer, according to the patent. Um, recent CDC uh, uh, information has noted that the death rate from the vaccine is 20% higher than the death rate from COVID-19. And that's just so far, wait till, you know, the real deal kicks in. Um, Biden administration is working feverishly on a vaccine passport. Uh, so you can't buy and sell, uh, can't travel, can't work, can't do anything without the passport. Governor DeSantos in Florida has already come out and said there's no possible way Florida is submitting to that. So we may be having our Bible studies in Miami from now on. Thousands of vaccinated people have become infected with COVID at a higher rate than non-vaccinated people in New York, Minnesota, South Carolina, Idaho, Florida, and Washington so far. It's not clear uh, the intensity of their sickness because you're probably pretty familiar with the whole concept of all the spike proteins. If you get it, you get it in every cell of your body, not just in the lungs. So one can expect disaster. Uh, I mentioned the Forbes article last week on this very issue about these uh, states that have very high vaccine vaccination rates also have skyrocketing COVID rates. And what they didn't come right out and tell you is those are people who've been vaccinated. So that sort of, to me, smacks back to remember back in February when the CDC was giving out uh, millions of the swabs that were pre-infected with COVID. So if you didn't have it, you were going to get it. So with all this, Umar Song, the Washington State Health Secretary, said people should still get vaccinated as soon as they are eligible, still get vaccinated because people don't want to. People should still get vaccinated as soon as they are eligible and encourage friends, loved ones, and coworkers to do the same because, of course, who needs friends, loved ones, and coworkers? Even if you have been vaccinated, you still need to wear a mask, practice social distancing, and wash your hands to prevent the spreading of COVID-19 to others who have not been vaccinated. Remember last week I reported on that nurse who videotaped her getting the shot. She was pregnant, nurse. She was getting the shot to protect herself, her baby, and her patients. And three days later, her baby miscarried. So she had to go back on Facebook and, you know, full of tears, re recognizing that she just killed her baby. Now more than three dozen women have come out and said the same thing. So apparently it's my body. I'll do what I want. Only counts if you're murdering your own child. They will stick you with this thing. Anyway, okay, so let's get the news out of the way. Then we can start the Bible study. So I'm starting a new thing where I'm going to make you people speak Hebrew. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there you go. So uh, we are, as, as I mentioned, in the counting of the Omer. There's, there's 50 days from, okay, counting of the Omer. So this is one of the prayers um, and most Hebrew prayers are the same. So, or they start the same way. So that makes it easy for us to learn. So just repeat after me. Baruch Atah Adonai. Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam. Asher Kedishanu. Bimitzvotav Vetsa Vanu. Okay, that was a new one. Al-Sifrirat Ha-Omar. 
Okay. So you've recognized, I'm sure by now, the Barak Eta Edonai is, is, you know, Barak Ota is blessed are you. Adonai is Lord. Elohe now you probably recognize as, as God. So it's blessed are you, Lord our God. And then Melech, you know, Melech, king and universe is Ha'olam. And it's interesting that word olam is the word in Hebrew for a, a vanishing. It's like you walk so far and then, you know, you just, you disappear, which by the way is only possible on a flat earth. So that's that word. It's that vanishing is, is the word in Hebrew for universe. Cause there is no word. Um, then you've got this, the, this, this is the new part, the Ashur Kiddishuna uh, is that's sanctified. And then you get the bimitzvotav. You see mitzvah in there. So that's where they get the commandments. Um, and then verizavanu is the counting or, you know, part of that. And then you get uh, the counting of the haomar, the omer. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit is uh, this counting of the omer. So what I'm supposed to do is stand up and say, today, I count the sixth day of the Omer. So there you go. So we're on the sixth day of the Omer, because remember the om counting of the Omer, and maybe you guys aren't familiar with this. When you have Pesach, um, then the morrow after, and I may have this verse, the morrow after the Sabbath, after Pesach is actually when the Feast of First Fruits is. So we get kind of used to thinking the Feast of First Fruits is three days after Passover because that's when Yeshua rose. And that's not actually true. The Feast of First Fruits can fall either the next day after Pesach or all the way to seven days after. It just depends on because we're, we're tied to the morrow after the Sabbath. So in this case, the morrow after the Sabbath, after Pesach was three days. So Yeshua rose from the grave on the Feast of Firstfruits, which was three days. And we've talked extensively in the past about all the things, and not even all of them, but some of the things in scripture that happen on the third day or after the second day. I mean, there, there's, it's, it's clear that that's a thing in scripture right? After the second day or on the third day appears hundreds of times and we uh, tie the events of whatever scripture is telling us to um, the third day. I mean, it has something to do with that. So think for a moment the intricacies of having all this occur on the third day because the Feast of First Fruits could have happened any day of the week, but it happened that he was raised on the third day, which is what pieces together those hundreds of ideas and verses in scripture to mean something. So it's it's clear that this was no accident. I mean, if he had, if he, if the feast of first fruits had happened on the sixth day, would he have risen on the sixth day on the feast of first fruits, or would he have not been our first fruits, or you know, how would that have worked? So from before the foundations of time, this was all orchestrated like everything else to occur exactly on the, it, these days. And that's another backhanded uh, way you can figure out that he was crucified in 33 AD because in 33 AD, the Feast of First Fruits fell three days after Pesach. It didn't happen that way for the, you know, three or four years previous and three or four years after that. Um, Okay, so the whole, well, let me just read this first. Vayikra, chapter 23, starting in verse 9. I read a few verses out of chapter 23. And Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and you shall reap a harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf, the picture, of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before Yahuwah and to, to be accepted for you. And on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So the, the Feast of First Fruits, that's what would happen because the, the Feast of First Fruits celebrates the first harvest, which is the barley harvest. And the barley unto this day is not the favored grain. 
It was the grain you would feed to the animals. It was the grain that the poor people would have to eat. It, you know, it's the lowbrow stuff. But that it ripens faster than the wheat. So it's available some 50 days before the wheat harvest is available. So the first harvest of the year is the barley. And you saw the picture of the sheaf. And that's how they did it in those days. Is My understanding is they would go through the fields and they would tie off you know, a bundle of grain. And then they would... Uh, whack it so you'd have a bundle and then they would take all the bundles and they would stack them so that's a sheaf and if if you have to know how much a sheaf is it's 43 ounces a sheaf is just a is is just a measure it's like a gallon or a quarter a pint or whatever and whoever it is that thinks about these things has said that a sheaf is roughly 43 ounces of the grain or whatever you're measuring. So that's how much grain you would get out of this sheaf. So you take the sheaf to the tabernacle. This is the first sheaf. And typically this would happen before the harvest actually began. So you would take this first sheaf and that happens to this day. You know, you have a garden. There are always a couple of, you know, overachievers that pop first and you've got some fruits or vegetables even out of the same group that they're, they're the first ones, you know, to happen. And then at the course of the normal, you know, blooming or growing or whatever, you'll get 87 bushels of zucchini and then you'll get a few late stragglers. But this is the first, typically the first group before the harvest begins in, in earnest. And you would take that and the protocol was you take it before you've taken anything out of your field, you would take it to the temple and the priest would wave it, you know, so that God can see it, because of course he can't see it if you're holding it down here. So he has to wave it to get approval. And then they would beat it out in the temple. You know, they'd beat the sheaves, throw away the chaff and burn it. They would get the grain gathered up, then they'd grind it into flour. Then they'd take a handful of the flour and some oil and turn it into a cake. And they'd fry up the cake. And that would be the offering. So that offering would go onto the fire. And then the rest of the grain is what the priests would eat. Because remember, the priests didn't have a salary. They relied on the uh, grandioseness of the people. They were supported by the people, both with food and money and clothing and, you know, whatever they needed. And the priests did have a house. They, you know, they remember they only work two weeks a year plus the feast. So they put in five hard weeks a year. And then the other 47 weeks a year, they would be at home. So they could grow, you know, and live and have cattle and all that stuff. But while they were doing their priestly duties at the tabernacle, they were not to do those things. They were not to cook, bless you, and grow and, you know, herd the cattle and all that stuff. That was up to the people to provide for them while they were working at the temple. So this is the first fruits of the year that the priests could put into the barn. Um, and it was the barley harvest. So that's kind of the feast of first fruits. And that's what they're talking about here, the morrow after the Sabbath. So this is the feast of first fruits and the priest should wave it and get the festivities going. And then from that day, they count the omer. Right. And the omer, again, is just that measure of weight. It's nothing fancy. It's a sheaf. So they would count 49 days. They would count seven sevens uh, until then the morrow after the seven seventh, the 50th day is Shavuot, which we call, which is a terrible name. We call it Pentecost because in Greek, pente is 50. And this happens 50 days after the first waving of the sheets. So right now we're in the sixth day of that, those, those 49 days. So the 50th day this year, the 49th day is May 16th. So May 16th will be the end of the counting of the Omer. And then the morrow after that will be Shavuot, which is my birthday. And it's also a Monday. So you might as well just take that day off now. Um, I'm giving you 50, well, 40, I'm giving you a bunch of time to get that day off. Um, so 
it's this is one of these things, one of these many things that somewhat irritates me both personally because I don't do it and corporately because I wish we did do it that the church doesn't do. We tend to think of um, Shabbat or I even hate saying it Pentecost as it's kind of a nothing day. You know, the Catholics celebrate it, which is weird. But we don't, as a rule. I mean, someone might make mention of it if it happens to fall on a Sunday or something. But it's not something that we typically um, look for. So let me read um, from Viker again. This is chapter 23 still. This is just down in verse 15. And so they're still talking about the feast. Chapter 23 of Viker is all about all the festivals and the feasts. So this is continuing on, and you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, which is the morrow after the Sabbath of Pesach, Passover, the day that you brought the sheaf of the waving, seven sevenths, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seven Sabbaths shall number 50 days, and then you shall offer a new meat offering unto Yahuwah. And you shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two tenths of a deal, which again is a, is a measure, of fine flour, and they shall be bacon, bacon, baked with leaven, and they are the first fruits onto Yahuwah. So the, and I'm getting a lot of blank stares because there's no farmers here, I guess. You're a farmer, you should know this stuff. So the, the barley would harvest, and then 49, 50 days later, the wheat would be ready to harvest. Well, the wheat is the grain of the kings. It's the grain that you would prefer to eat. I mean, to this day, nobody likes barley. No soybeans. I'm sorry. No soybeans. You're planting the wrong crop, dude. Um, so after you're on the 49th day, on the last day of your counting the Omer, you bring another offering to the temple. But this time, you're not bringing the sheaves. You've harvested the wheat, and you're making two loaves of fine bread. And it tells you how to do that, two-tenths of a deal, which is, you know, two quarts. I don't know how much it is. Something, and you make two loaves, and those loaves go to the priest. And the priest does the same thing. He holds it up so God can see it, because apparently he's quite nearsighted. And then it's offered... You know, it becomes food for the priest, but that's your offering. So that brings you to the day of Shavuot. And to us, it's not uh, it's not a big holiday, but it should be. Because Shavuot, uh, which, by the way, is the plural word of weeks. Weeks is Shabua from seven, which is Sheah. So this is the plural of that where you get Shabbat. So it's the, the Feast of Weeks or the Festival of Weeks, which is literally what it is. So that should remind us of the Jubilee too, because it happens on the 50th day. And the Jubilee happens after seven sevens of years. Then the year after the seven sevens is the Jubilee year. And that's the year when everything returns to its owner, which you know meant land and cattle and all that stuff. But to us, we return to our owner. So it's always been, uh, every time there's a jubilee, and no one's quite certain when the jubilees are, but everybody makes a pretty good guess. When there's a jubilee, um, people like me get all excited because that's the year we should return to our owner. And if indeed our owner is Yahuwah, that's where we want to go. If our owner is somebody else, uh, we want to pretend like that day didn't exist. But this idea of 50 should bring up, I mean, it would to any Hebrew, this idea of uh, the Jubilee and the restoration and all that stuff. So it's it's a big deal. But the actual celebration is in remembering of uh, the Lord providing the Torah. Remember, Moses went up the mountain and received from the hand of God, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. I mean, certainly a lot more than the Ten Commandments. And that's what this is celebrating. So, uh, and there are a lot of groups that this, this should be a big deal. This should be a big deal to all of us because there's nothing more important than the Torah. I mean, that th th those are the instructions of God. 
And to the extent that we are saved or not saved, it is basically our understanding of and obedience to his instructions, right? Everybody would agree with that. Where people disagree is they don't think the Torah are his instructions. They think it's just the Ten Commandments. Okay, you can have that debate with him. But this is a, is a big deal. And there are groups that when they're counting the Omer, they would start at 49 and they would count back just like a countdown. So when you get to one, you know that spaceship is going off. This is a huge deal. And it, it looks like a bigger deal when you count it backwards. You know, you're counting towards that day instead of we start at one and count to 49. But, but think, about, think about this day. This day is celebrating the instructions of God, the Torah, the most important part. We tend to think the New Testament is it. It's all it is, you know, it's just the New Testament. But there is nothing in the New Testament that's new. It was all a bunch of Hebrews who knew the Torah, living their life according to the Torah. They recognized who the Messiah was. They recognized the importance of obedience and of understanding. And that's one of the reasons I want you to read Matthew 13 is it has that thing we refer to all the time. Why do you speak to them in parables? You know, and read it in Greek. It's awesome because why do you speak to the rabble in parables? It's, that's what they call them, the rabble, which is perfect. The people who aren't, they, they're not familiar with the Torah. They don't know the things that, that they should know. So he, they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answers, as I'm sure you all know, well, to you, it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them, it has not. So read that whole section. It's a whole bunch of parables that you would be familiar with, but think about them in the context that they were given, and that's sort of the context. But um, Yeshua set the nation of Israel free, right? He set them free from the bondage of midstream of Egypt, which is always a picture of the world. And they traveled 49 days or near there to get to Mount Sinai, at which point he gave them his law, his Torah, his, his instructions. And think about that. The thing that sets God's people apart from everybody else on earth is the Torah, right? we have or they had the actual instructions from the God who created everybody and everything. And of all the nations and of all the people groups, it was the nation of Israel that he set free. He put them in bondage and he took them out of bondage. He put them in so that he could take them out. And he took them out. And remember the, the what was said uh, he, he said to Moshe, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov knew me as El Shaddai, the provider God. They need to know me as Yahuwah, as the eternal God. And that was the whole point. He brought them in and everything was great, but they didn't know him as the eternal, omniscient creator God that has been there forever and will be there forever. Olam, as far as you could see or think or visualize, he's been there and that's how long he will be at the other end too. There is no end, it's just he's there. So he brought them out so that they could know him. And to that end, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And remember the thunderings and the clouds and the smoking. And it says, Yahuwah came down and he called Moshe up. So Moshe went up and Yahuwah gave him all the instructions that we would need to come. And so he came down and you remember they were already off on their own deal and he broke the tablets and had to have more. He had to make the second ones up, you know, so the whole picture of writing it on your heart and all that, it's, you know, we've gone through all that stuff. So that's what we're celebrating. And what you're celebrating is everything, every single thing there is that separates us from everybody else in the world.
and that is Yahuwah. It's the God. It's his word. It's the things he has done for us and told us that we need to know. There are no other people on earth that had that. So we as 21st century American Christians have no idea about counting the Omer. We barely know about Pesach. Somebody knows about the Feast of First Fruits sometimes. Nobody knows why you count 50 days or what this whole deal is. You know, every pastor I've ever seen is makes the joke about well, they were all in one Honda. You know, they're all in one accord when when pa Pentecost came, you know, that's not it at all. This is the most important thing that there is. This is the word that separates us from the rest of the world. If you if you really think that you have an eternity with him, the only reason you can think that is because of the words of God, because of the Torah, because you know them, you believe them, you try to live them, you obey him. Because if, if, if you're like the rest of the world and half of Christianity, you don't know, you don't care, you're not even interested in finding out. You just go on Sundays, the wrong day, and you give them your money and you have your donuts and you go watch a football game. And that's got nothing to do with the Torah and being obedient. And I'm not saying there's nobody in a Christian church that's saved. I'm just saying we don't make the deal out of it that we should. Because these everything, the feasts, the festivals, there are I think 192 days on the Hebrew calendar that force us to focus on our relationship with the Lord. And we just don't get that in church today, but we should. Because the one thing I know about all of us is it takes this long for us to walk away. And if we don't have our nose to the grindstone, as it were, if, we don't, if, if we're not constantly celebrating the truths of the Lord, then we're no different than the rest of the world. And he wants us to be different. So this is a deal that we miss. This is a, these 49 days to a Hebrew are thought of as a holy walk. And that's why every night at sundown, every obedient Hebrew anywhere on earth will stand up in front of his family and say, I count the Omer, it's the 13th day. And next week it will be the 13th day, right? So, so they say, this is the 13th day, it's one week and six days. Is, you know, and again, that's rabbinical, but it's, you know, some of the rabbinical things are good just because they keep us focused on what's important. Okay. Um, let's see. I have something here from Ephesium chapter three. I'm going to read and see if I can figure out why it's here. For this cause, I, Shaul, the prisoner of Yeshua HaMashiach for you Gentiles, if ye have heard the dispensation of the grace of Elohim, which is given me to you word, how that by the revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Mashiach, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto the holy apostles and his prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Mashiach by the gospel. Okay, that was a mouthful in King James. But he is, uh, Shaul talks about mysteries a lot. He, he uses the word 23 times in the New Testament, talking about 11 separate mysteries. So you, you have to ask yourself, why is it a mystery? What is he talking about? And the most common definition of a mystery is, you know, is something that's known but not revealed yet. And uh, so in this case, the mystery is, what's up with the Gentiles? Why do the Gentiles get to come in? Because this, it had always been for the nation of Israel, right? So Paul is saying that this is a mystery, the mystery of the Messiah. Um, 
that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Mashiach by the gospel. Now, as you look through the, uh, the word mystery does not appear anywhere in the Tanakh, which is kind of interesting. So Paul uses it and it's, you know, mysterion in Greek, it's translated obviously as a mystery in English. Um, and it's, a, it's strictly a New Testament thing. Jordan's not feeling awesome. So we should pray for Jordan. Um, so there are several ways to look at this. And one of the most common to 21st century American Christians who thinks everything's about them is that the mystery is something uh, Yeshua revealed to Paul to Shao only. Nobody else has this information. It's top secret. Only he has it, and he's revealing it to us a little bit at a time. Okay. I'm not totally down with that. When you look in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, um, you can think of dozens of people, Rahab, Ruth, Caleb, Elijah, uh, King Og, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, there's any number of Gentiles that have joined themselves to the nation of Israel. So this idea that Gentiles can't be a part of it, uh, it's all over the Old Testament. So that's not a big mystery. So I'm wondering if Shaul was talking about the house of Yisrael, which was scattered. And we've talked about this extensively. It's scattered among the nations. And they're scattered for 722 years before the uh, disciples went out and started sharing with them that they could come back, that the Lord was going to regather them, that this was a good thing, that he scattered them on purpose. Because now he's got his nation all over the world, and he was going to bring them back. But the Yehudim in Jerusalem did not like the fact that the house of Israel was scattered all over the world, and they called them Gentiles. They refused to call them Hebrews anymore, or people of God. They thought they were Gentiles. So was Paul talking about that when he used this term Gentiles about the Gentiles being brought back into fellowship. I don't know. It's certainly possible. The other thing that um, I was thinking about was when Yeshua came, he was constantly arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had completely messed up the Torah. They had taken all of the instructions of Yahuwah and they had twisted them to be man's regulations. And they had made them into something they were not. And when you read chapter 13 of Matanyahu, look to the, to the bush, the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds grows into the giant bush. Well, it doesn't. Mustard plants don't grow that big. It's a, it's a picture, right? It, the seed of God, the word of God, grew into something it was never intended to be. It grew into this big it grew into the Catholic Church with giant buildings and funny clothes. And, you know, it was never intended to be that way. It was intended to be a relationship between the created and the creator. It was intended to get uh, his son and his son's wife and the children back into the house of God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many religious leaders before and since have twisted it for their own purposes to make it into something that no man could keep. Well, was Paul talking about that when he's talking about uh, the Gentiles can come back? I don't know. And you have to figure it out on your own. I know for me... Um, I am a little suspect of this idea, and again, this is probably what you would be taught in most Christian churches, or at least most non-denominational Christian churches, this idea that the Lord revealed 
secrets to Paul that no one else knew. That not Adam or Avraham or Noah or Moshe or anybody knew. And I find that hard to believe. And maybe it's true. I don't know. But this whole concept, and it is, it's, it's very popular, especially in America, because it's how we want it to be, that Yahuwah revealed certain secrets, mysteries only to show. And he could then bring us in. And it, again, we, I, I personally have been struggling with the pre-trib rapture. So that means you people have been struggling with it, whether you struggle with it or not. And one of the, um, I guess I'm going to have to get on with this. Uh, one of the things is tied into this. And that is, and I think I actually have the verses. Uh, Shaul was... You remember the story. He was persecuting the church, the church, the Christians, whoever those people are. And then uh, his eyes were covered with scales. He was blinded. The Lord said, why are you picking on me? You know, and he became saved, right? And then that's like Acts chapter 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, somewhere on there. And then there's no Paul for like three chapters. Where'd he go? Well, it says he went to Arabia. He went to Arabia for, depending on which version you have and how you read it, between three and 13 years. He went to Arabia or Damascus. And then he came back to deal with the disciples. So the, the, the story goes, and I suspect this is probably true, that he, he was at the foot of the Lord learning all the things that he learned. You know, he was already a great biblical scholar he knew every word of the, the the tanakh you had to to study under gamaliel you had to have the entire book memorized by the time you were 30 so he knew the words but he didn't know the heart so he spent this is the idea anyway he spent these three years learning and that's why he became the disciple of all disciples he wrote most of the new testament because of uh, this time that he had spent in Arabia or Damascus or whatever. So um, the story goes that he didn't just go to Arabia. He went to Mount Sinai and he sat on Mount Sinai for three years and heard from God. And that's how he got all of these mysteries and got all this information. And that's, you know, I've been for years trying to get you to just read the words of the Bible, right? Don't put stuff in it. Don't take stuff away from it. Just read what it says. And what it says is he went to Arabia and Damascus. It doesn't say anything about Mount Sinai. It doesn't say anything about him sitting with the Lord. It doesn't say anything about him gaining all this wisdom. And, and it may well be true, but it doesn't say that. So to base your whole theology on that um, doesn't, sit that well with me it could be true uh, you know and i read that verse about moshe for a reason because one of the pre-trib uh, proofs if you will is is that yahuwah was in the clouds he came down to the mountain and he called moshe and moshe went up that's the rapture that's the pre-tribulation rapture. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I hope it is. I would love to go tomorrow or next week or, you know, certainly before a quarter of the population of the earth dies. I would love to go. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't want to go. I'm not saying anybody is a loser who thinks that. It's entirely possible. But I don't read it in Scripture. And for me to have to do the gymnastics required that I did for many years <laughs> to believe that it's 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 been nagging at me for years and seriously nagging at me for a while and I don't know that that's true 
and it doesn't matter if it's true or not. What matters is that y'all know that if it's not true, that does not mean the Bible's not true. All that means is you messed up your eschatology or somebody messed it up for you. And I personally, as we have talked in the past, have been leaning towards, because Paul himself, if he has all this wisdom and knowledge, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that if we are the end generation, the people of the last days, we are to look to the Exodus generation. And when you look at the Exodus generation, what do you see? You see them being protected in Goshen during the tribulation. You see the 10 plagues that played out in Egypt overlaying favorably the plagues in the book of Revelation. But you don't see anybody being pulled out. What you see is a witness because God's protecting them. And that may be how it goes. We may be, we may, like Philippians said, we may have the honor of going through the tribulation. Of, and, and he's not talking about it in terms of the big tri T tribulation. But, you know, that just may be how it goes down. And to me, that makes more sense. And of course, it doesn't matter what makes sense to me. It matters what makes sense to him and how he's going to do it. But it's important for me to tell you to not get invested in any particular doctrine that may or may not happen. Because I am so concerned about millions and millions and millions of people who are completely sold out to the pre-tribulation rapture. What's going to happen if in a few months or next year, if this vaccine is everything they say it is, and a quarter of the population dies, and it becomes obvious we're in the book of Revelation, that was the sixth seal, I know what's next, and you haven't been raptured. And how many people are going to lose their faith? How many people are going to think it's just not, none of it's true? And I know it's all true. And I also know I don't get it all. And I will never get it all. And that's why we're going to spend all eternity sitting at his feet until we get it all. And it'll be awesome. And there'll be stuff every day for the next eternity that we'll just go, how did I miss that? And that'll be great. So I don't expect anybody to know it all. And I hope you don't expect me to know even much of it, but just don't be sold out to something that may not be completely true. All right, let me read uh, from the book of Romanium, Romans chapter 11. For I would not, brethren, that you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you shall be wise in your own conceit. So think that through. If you are ignorant or stupid on purpose, as Ken Ham says, of this mystery, that means you are wise in your own conceits, right? You think you know the way, you know the answer, and you don't. I don't. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And this is used all the time as a pre-tribulation thing. So just read this with me. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel can be saved. So what did I just say? All Israel can't be saved until the Gentiles are what? joined to them until they come in. There's no house of the Gentiles. They're not being saved separately. I don't see them being raptured out ahead of the house of Israel. I mean, this is Paul. He's saying the fullness of the Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in so that, or and so, all Israel shall be saved. And it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from who? From Yaakov, from Israel, from the Gentiles. For this is my covenant unto them, and I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Who is he talking to? The Yehudim. Remember, the house of Israel are enemies to the house of the Yehudim until Ezekiel 37, when he brings the two sticks together, until the end of time the end of days. So concerning the gospel are enemies for your sake, 
but as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So remember, we've talked about that before. Who are the elect? It says it clearly a number of times, I think it's clearly, a number of times in Scripture, the elect are the house of Israel. Well, who are they? Well, they don't even know, but God knows. Those are the ones that were scattered among the nations that have assimilated among the people that the house of the Yehudim said could never come back. But God said they could come back. He was going to regather them. He's going to regather them at the end of the day, and they were going to be his bride. And who's with them? The Gentiles. Well, who are they? Us, hopefully. If you're not genetically from the house of Israel, I can assume that you have joined yourself, like Caleb and Ruth and, and Elijah and <laughs> King Og, and all these other guys. So you're in the house of Israel, and he brings the two trees together, the two sticks together, the two olive trees. We're there, right? It's not a separate group. I, I don't, I don't see it as a separate, separate group. <sighs> okay. Amos, Amok, three seven. Surely Yahuwah will do nothing except he reveals the secret to his servants, the prophets. Okay, we've read that, you know, 87,000 times. The Lord does not do stuff before he tells us. So this idea that I just told Paul the secret and he's going to reveal it to you. You've never heard this before. I don't know. Matanyahu 12, 39. But he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. There shall be no sign given, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. There's no new revelation. He's given it to us all. It was all in the Torah. It was all in the Tanakh. Everything we need to know, everything that the disciples taught can be found in the Tanakh. Okay, let me read this again. Uh, maybe I didn't read this. We've talked about it. Shemot chapter 19. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moshe spake, and Elohim answered him by voice. And Yahuwah came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Yahuwah called Moshe up to the top, and Moshe went up. So to some people, that is the proof of the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't know, maybe. I mean, I hope so. I'd really like to go. <laughs> but I don't see it. And this whole concept of I'm telling one guy a secret and not telling you, I don't get that out of Scripture. It's never been that way. All right. Galatium, chapter 1. And when it pleased Elohim who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the heathens, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem and to them which were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Kepha and abode with him 15 days. Okay, so you all see where he went to sit on Mount Sinai for three years and God came and talked to him, right? That's clearly in there. I don't know, maybe, I mean, I admit, I am not anywhere near the smartest knife in the drawer. But I don't get that from that. Okay. I'm going to read to you Matanyahu chapter 13, starting in verse 10, which hopefully you're going to read several times this week. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou to them in parables? <clears throat> he answered and said to them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it, to them it is not given. For whosoever haveth, to him shall be given. And he, I'm sorry, for whoever, yeah, to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But to whoever have not, from him it shall be taken away, even that which he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of uh, Elisha, I mean uh, Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and by seeing ye shall see, 
and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts, and she should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which we see, and have not seen them. And to hear those things which we hear, and have not heard them. I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. But to, to me, that verse, this la the verse 17, this last, we did a, a camp, uh, high school camp, that was the most amazing thing I've ever been a part of. God was, I mean, it was, we could spend days talking about the, the things that happened and how God was there. I mean, it was like nothing I've ever seen before. As I'm riding the bus down, this is the verse that kept playing in my head because I had seen things that prophets and kings had desired to see. And I had heard things that they desired to hear. And it was just amazing to me that that happened the way it happened. And when, why would it happen to me? I mean, this was the most amazing camp for everybody that was there. So when I, when I, when I read this, I think, I kind of think I know what they're talking about. The disciples got it. They saw these things. They were in the midst of Yeshua and he was doing miracles and they saw things they could never have even anticipated seeing. They couldn't even have thought these things. And yet they saw him and they heard him and they walked with God. And it, it must have been remarkable. <laughs> you know, the things that have happened in my life, and I'm sure those, those times that they've happened in yours that are so remarkable that you just know God is right there. Could you imagine living like that for three and a half years or living like that for all eternity? It will be a remarkable thing. And they describe this in, you know, Matanyahu, um, quoting Yeshua, I'm sure, describes this as a mystery. And I don't, it's the same word, but I don't put this in that same category of, oh, I'm revealing something that's never been, you know, it's never been seen before. This mystery is the mystery, it's the difference between God's people and everybody else. It's the mystery between the Torah and any other uh, religion or denomination or, you know, it's, it's, it's the difference of today or of, you know, Shabbat, which is coming up in 40 some days. It's this, this is this time for us to do our holy walk, to be thanking, be counting the Omer. Every single day we should count. You know, what are you counting? You're counting the sheep. You're counting the goodness of God. You're counting the things. He's, he has them growing in your yard. They're growing barley and wheat and grapes. And these things are just growing in abundance. That's from the Lord. How else would that happen? And the, in point of fact, the land of Israel, nothing grew from the time the, the Jews left until uh, some Jews returned. In 48, 1948, it was a desert wasteland. Mark Twain is famous for touring it in the late 1800s and, and just calling it, this is, a, it's not even fit for the scorpions and the snakes. This is a terrible place because the land responds to God's people and everything responds to God's people. But he, it only responds if we know who he is. That's the purpose of the Torah. It's the instructions. And that's what we should be doing for the 50 days between Pesach and Shabbat is every single day we should be thinking about the goodness of the Lord. And we should be doing a walk in our personal lives that's just thinking about him and how, how, do, we, how do we draw nearer to him? Because we know what's going to happen. I mean, we've seen the end of the book. It doesn't end that well for most people. But I think it will end okay for us. <laughs> Our destination is sure. Hopefully. So that's, that's, that's where we are. We're counting the Omer. We're making that walk. So 
be thinking of that. And we will um, pick up some more stuff, obviously, next week. But one, one thing I wanted, I've been meaning for a month to mention this, and I just now thought of it again, is this, uh, this COVID thing. And we all know people who've had it, you know, and not, not, they didn't even know they had it. It was a mild thing. And we know people who've had it and have died from it. It's been awful and horrible. And you just can't make sense of how that is. And as I was thinking about, because we're going into, you know, you all know where we're going, um, the three sons of Noah. And one of them, Ham, became Black Africa. And one of them, Shem, became the Middle Eastern people. And one of them, Japheth, became the Western European people. And to this day, you can look at them. I mean, it's not hard to pick out a Black African from a crowd. Everybody knows what a Middle Easterner looks like. You can always tell if someone's roots fall in the, you know, in Western Europe somewhere. Why? Why is that? How do you know that? It's genetics, right? We have, uh, you know, if there, each of us has 16 genes for color. So we can be as black as the blackest black guy you've ever met, or we can be as white as a Norwegian uh, bleach manufacturer. You know, it, though, the, that's the gene range we all have. And occasionally you'll have a white couple that will have a black baby, or less often you'll have a black couple that will have a white baby. For no other reason than that's just how the genes fall. So, and, and everything about us is that way. Our attitudes, the things that we prefer to eat, the things that we prefer to do. I mean, some or all of that is genetically motivated. And I, I assume you would agree on some level with that, right? So when you get to the point where you can modify genes and, and change people's DNA, you can modify, and that's the whole purpose of gain of function, is you can modify this disease or this whatever it is that you're trying to make. You can target it to a specific gene or a specific gene pool. So let's say you wanted to get rid of all the blacks. You would make a, a, a flu or whatever, you know, whatever the disease is, that's not harmful to people that carry the white gene or that display the white gene, but would target people that display the black gene. Or you could target people that are fat, or you could target people that are skinny, or, you know, any, any particular gene thing you have, you can target these... Uh, well, you can target repairs, which is the upside of that, because they go in and they will snip out the gene that's causing cancer, and they'll replace it with an inert bridge. But you can also go in and you can target, and they, they call it the God gene, right? The gene that they believe makes people like us, perhaps different from people who just don't get it. They don't care, and that's what the Bible's talking about. These the rabble, the people are don't they'll net they'll never get it. They don't know the mysteries of the kingdom of God because their genes, I suspect, just don't point them in that direction. So if if and there's a point, if you've got this thing that they call COVID, and most of us don't even think it's real because we've never really been sick or but then some people die from it. And I would suggest that there's more to this than, you know, we tend to think, oh, it's in the air and, you know, I'm just lucky I didn't get it. I don't think so. Because when you, and we're going to get into this, when you start talking about manipulating genes and doing all these things, scripture says, and I read this to you a couple of weeks ago, they do this and they did this 
you know, thousands of years ago, they did it to provoke God. And I would suggest the same thing is afoot today, because we are seeing an attack on certainly, you know, they can't get to God, so they get to God's people. But that's the purpose, I believe, of I believe of this whole thing is to attack God, to attack God's people. And they can genetically target it, I bet. And that's why some people are getting sick and some people aren't. So I don't know. When I see, when I read the book of Revelation and I see how do you get a quarter of the population is dead? I mean, that's, you know, you think, oh my gosh, God's just throwing random lightning bolts. That's not it. It's going to be something we did. (laughs) He's not doing it. He's allowing it to happen because we did it. There's people like the people who work in these gain of function laboratories. I mean, you go to work every single day to do what? To design an illness, a sickness, to kill people? I mean, what is wrong with your soul? And they've asked Fauci that, and he says, oh, it's very important work, and we use it to control pandemics. No, you don't. Yeah, you use it as a weapon of mass destruction. You use it to kill Why would you think? I mean, I didn't even know birds had the flu. You know, who knew? I've never seen a sick bird. But apparently there's illnesses in various animals. So they take an illness from an animal and they manipulate it until they can put it into you and make you sick. And they can manipulate the genes to make certain people sick. And they've been doing that for decades. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm one of those guys who thinks uh, the whole AIDS thing was just targeted at blacks, targeted at gays. And they could do that because they know the gene. The black gene's obvious. That's an easy one. That's just like blue eyes or you know, being fat or being an alcoholic. That's a gene. You take it out, you're not anymore. Well, if you're, you know, what if there's one that predisposes you to being gay? Well, we got to get rid of those people. What if there's one that predisposes you to being stupid? Oh, we got to get rid of those people. Well, what if there's one that predisposes you to being too smart? We got to get rid of that guy. You know, I mean, this is, this is the book of Revelation, right? You think about how this is going to happen. And we all think God's up there pushing buttons and smoting people. It doesn't happen that way. It happens because he lets us kill ourselves. And I see it. <laughs> yeah i know it's uh yeah as i've said many times in the last 20 years i think this is the most exciting time on earth that's ever been you can ask anybody when they want to live and most people say oh i'd like to live when jesus you know knowing my luck i'd be living in some mud hut in tibet or something but they want to walk with jesus right well i suggest the most exciting time to be alive is when he comes back a second time. And that's now. And there's, you know, there's some baggage with that for sure. But I think it'll be pretty awesome.